and this court will be adjourned until the jury's verdict is reached. Open up your passport. On the inside cover it reads, the Minister of Foreign Affairs requests, in the name of Her Majesty the Queen, all those whom it may concern to allow the bearer to pass freely. Her image is on our money and our stamps, and her portrait hangs in arenas, town halls, and government buildings across the country. If you are a new Canadian, a police officer, a member of Parliament or the Armed Forces, you have probably taken an oath to bear true allegiance to Her Majesty, Queen Elizabeth II, Queen of Canada, her heirs and successors. In Canada, criminal prosecutors are known as Crown Prosecutors, and criminal cases are styled R versus, Latin for Regina, meaning Queen, or Rex for King. Ships in the Canadian Navy are designated HMCS, Her Majesty's Canadian Ship. The list goes on. The Crown is everywhere, if you look for it. But it's also nowhere, at least not when it comes to the day-to-day -day wielding of power. Canada is a constitutional monarchy, and the principles of responsible government require that while our Queen reigns, she does not rule. Executive action, the signing of legislation, the appointing of judges, these and other tasks are performed on the advice of the Prime Minister and Cabinet, and almost always performed by the Queen's representative in Canada, the Governor-General. This week on the show is Professor Barbara Messamore, a history professor at the University of the Fraser Valley here in British Columbia. Professor Messamore earned her PhD at the University of Edinburgh in 2003 and is something of an expert on the role of the Crown in Canada. She's a member of the Executive Committee of the Institute for the Study of the Crown in Canada and is of course widely published in the area. She is frequently consulted by media on all matters related to the Office of the Governor-General. Barbara and I had a call last week to discuss both the historic and modern roles of the Queen and the Governor-General in Canadian democracy, and what comes next when Her Majesty's now 70-year-long reign comes to an end. Spring is in the air here in Vancouver. This is episode three with Professor Barbara Messamore. God save the Queen. I'm Dan Coles, and this is Under Reserve. Professor Barbara Messamore, welcome to the show. Yeah, nice to be with you. You are a history professor at the University of Fraser Valley in Abbotsford, BC, and I understand you have a research interest in the role of Crown in Canada. Yes, it's something I've been working on for, for decades now, really. It's a, it's a topic that the, the more you get into it, the more there is to learn. And how, you know, you say you've been researching it for decades. How did that interest sort of start for you? Yeah, well, when I was first in, in grad school um, back in the, the late 1980s, political and constitutional history wasn't very fashionable. Well, in fact, it really still isn't, right? right. <laughs> so uh, advisors were trying to steer me toward more of the, the hot topics, which were social history, cultural history, that sort of thing. People cared less about politics, and, and to a great extent, um, historians have kind of vacated that field and, and left it to political scientists. But I think political scientists approach things differently. They kind of ask different questions of the material. Um, for historians, we often want to think about the context and things like that. So anyway, kind of in the course of working on um, some of the social and cultural 
aspects of the governor general's role, things like, for example, everybody will know the Stanley Cup and and the Grey Cup, of course, another example. Fewer people might know the Minto Cup, but those are examples of the kind of uh, social and cultural boosterism the governor general did in the late 19th and early 20th century. Um, So, you know, things that uh, were all about kind of trying to promote a sense of Canadian national identity that was seen as still compatible with the British tie, that British connection. Um, But but as I worked in that kind of uh, area, I kept thinking that the more interesting things to me were the constitutional questions, because you know, people imagine constitutional history is just a lot of dry, dusty documents. You just read them and you've got it, you know. But but in many ways, um, that's not the case. Their constitutions are, are kind of living things and, and a lot of it is um a lot of it's part of um tradition, you know, conventions and traditions that have emerged and it's not always just there in writing. I've often said it's a little bit like um, trying to play Monopoly when you have the written rules to risk. You know, that sometimes if you try to just look at what's there in writing, that wouldn't necessarily give you a clear picture of how we're governed. And I think a lot of this ambiguity comes down to the role of the Crown. You mentioned the British connection. I guess what looms large is is when we think about the Crown, I think most Canadians Mm -hmm. think about the Queen, who they would understand mm-hmm. to be a British person. So yeah. maybe you can help us out here. Who is the Queen to Canadians? Well, the Queen is Canada's head of state. And that's um, something that I would grant a little confusing in some ways. I think if you were to ask any Canadians who the head of state is, they'd say, well, it's prime minister, right? Uh, but of course, the prime minister is the head of government. And and so, you know, there's there's um, there's that element of confusion, the fact that in our constitution, unlike, say, the Americans, where the head of state and the head of government are, are the president embodied in one person, um, in in our system, we have the, the monarch as head of state and then the the prime minister as head of government. And then to further, further muddy the waters, we've got... Uh, our, our resident head of state, if you like, or, or you know, people say de facto, that can be the confusing head of state, the, the governor general. And what I mean by saying de facto, I don't mean in fact, I mean in contrast to in law, mm-hmm. right? That, that, um, that in that sense, the governor general is carrying out the function of the head of state, but the head of state is in fact the queen. So... What are the functions then that the head of state performs? Well, there there are many of them, but I would say, you know, when we think about why it's an important function, why it's really vital to our constitution, I'd say the core function is to ensure the continuity of legitimate government. And really what that means is that the the head of government who's in place, the prime minister at the provincial level, the premiers, is somebody who enjoys the confidence of the elected part of our constitution, the, the either um, you know the House of Commons or the Legislative Assembly in the provinces, right? So, so it's to ensure that that government is entrusted to somebody who has that support, who has that confidence. And so, um, typically, the uh, governor general or the, or the um, lieutenant governors at the provincial level will carry out their functions on the advice of ministers, 
advice of the um, provincial premiers or prime minister. Um, but there's also important reserve prerogative powers, powers to, in rare circumstances, um, in opposition to that advice. I'm thinking about minority government situations here. Is, is that what you're referring to? Well, yeah, I mean, that that's a good example that sometimes, uh, you know, often it's very clear-cut who has the right to form a government. You know, when you have a majority government, um, that's very clear. And when you think at times in our history where we've had a long run of majority governments, um, those are maybe the times people are most apt to to ask the question, well, why do we why do we need a governor general? What do they even do? You know, it's sort of a a uh, formulaic kind of thing where they just uh, appoint a prime minister, but we all know who that's going to be, right? Right, right. Uh, yeah, yeah, and yet in times of minority government, sometimes it's not altogether clear. And I guess I would offer the example of British Columbia in 2017. That's in pretty recent memory, right? Yep. So um, we had a situation where um, Christy Clark and the BC Liberals, who um, who had formed the government before that election, uh, wished to carry on governing. Um, they had, a, I think it was 43 seats, and the um, combined opposition had slightly more, just a slight edge. They had uh, 44, 41 for the NDP and three for the Greens, I think it was. Um, so you could say, well, yeah, she she had the right to to form a government because the BC Liberals won the most seats, right? But of course, it doesn't exactly work that way. It's not about who won the most seats; it's about who can command the confidence of the legislature. And so we we test that confidence in important ways, and that the speech from the throne is one of them. The budget speech is another, and if a government doesn't pass those essential tests of confidence. Uh, when they've lost confidence, one of two things could happen: either there'd be um, fresh, fresh elections, or the um, representative of the crown might call on somebody else to form a government. And that's Barbara. What I'm hearing from you—that's a discretion. That's that's a unique role that the lieutenant governor plays. Yeah, although you know, they, the thing of it is, it's it's in a, you know we think of that as a great power of the crown, and and so it is. It's an important power, but. Really, the ultimate arbiters of who gets to form a government is that elected body. You know, by giving or withholding their their um, confidence, they're the ones who determine. So, so I think you know where the where the check of the crown comes in is if a um, if a prime minister or a provincial premier attempts to carry on in power without that um, essential confidence. Then the uh, representative of the crown, of course, is the person who's who's kind of that that guardian of democracy in that sense, right? Other 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 examples. I mean, I, I think of you know, is there a concept where a, a governor general or a lieutenant governor could withhold consent or or refuse to perform other roles that are maybe notionally thought of as perfunctory or ceremonial along the same lines when there's an issue with confidence? Yeah, well, yeah, it, it does get a little bit confusing because, you know, people will often say, well, the governor general is just simply a rubber stamp, and they might look to the the matter, say, of giving royal assent to legislation. And I would suggest to you that in that instance, um, the discretion is, is lapsed. That is effectively a rubber stamp. I, I think that um, it's a given that uh, 
that royal assent is not going to be withheld. Um, and, you know, of course, we have the, the role of the courts to test the constitutionality of a, of a right. matter. Right. But, but, you know, refusal of assent is a lapsed power, but refusal of advice is not, right? And that's where it gets a little confusing. So, so when I say refusal of advice, what I'm talking about is if a prime minister or premier asks the governor general to, or, uh, or lieutenant governor to, um, to prorogue parliament mm. to end the session or dissolve for elections, um, you know, that those duties are typically carried out on advice, but the uh, representative of the Crown does have the prerogative in emergency, very rare situation to refuse that advice. And, of course, one of the best-known ones um, is the King Bing Affair in in 1926. And um, I was kind of struck that not very many people in 2017 in British Columbia kind of drew the parallel. You know, I know that's sort of our go-to thing whenever there's a a constitutional crisis. You know, people always say, oh, it's just like the the King Bing Affair, and and it seldom is. (laughs) But in this case, it was, right? That that it was very much the same, where you had a um, a head of government attempting to carry on with um, when they were losing the support of the elected body. And in that instance, in each instance, you had a uh, refusal of advice to dissolve Parliament for uh, elections or dissolve the legislature in the BC case, right? I know, and this is this is going back probably a decade now. Stephen Harper to resist mm-hmm. a potential challenge to his ability to continue to govern by the Liberals, uh, Stefan Dion and Michael Natchev, sought a mm-hmm. prorogation, and that was yep. granted. But yeah. I th- but I think I read that you know prime minister harper's office was working up an argument that if the governor general declined to grant the prorogation an appeal could be made to the queen herself have you have you heard that rumor and is there any viability to I, I, it i've heard that I, I mean i guess what i would say is we we can only judge people for for what they've <laughs> what they've actually done rather than what they might have in desperation contemplated doing. And and uh, I think, I mean, there's so many issues associated with that that, um, you know, they, people legitimately pointed out that Nikhil Jean um, did have the right to refuse that prorogation. I think her decision to allow it was the right decision because I think in, in you know, it's always the most extreme step to refuse advice, right? That that's kind of your very last card to play. And I think that um, we don't always know what happened behind the scenes. Sometimes um, in conversation, the governor general and the prime minister might decide on a, on a shorter period for which uh, parliament should be prorogued. And, and um, you know, those kind of things are, are sometimes negotiated uh, between them. You know, well, we'll give you six weeks, but not 10 or something like that. But mm-hmm. but um, I think also the one of the most important factors there is it was pretty clear Harper's government was on the point of losing confidence, but they had not yet done so, right? And so if the combined opposition wished to defeat them, they would have the opportunity. They would just have to wait a few weeks. And of course, in the in the intervening period, it kind of came unraveled. But but to go back to your question, um, I think it would have been had they taken that step and attempted to appeal to the Queen, 
I can I can almost guarantee that the answer would have been that the Queen uh, will offer no opinion on this purely Canadian matter. That um, you know, and I think this is one of the things that again a little confusing about the whole head of state um, and de facto head of state kind of question um, is that uh, the uh, the Governor General is the one who performs those duties. In, in Canada, but there isn't a chain of command, right? Mm. So we don't have the um, the Queen personally directing her uh, the Crown's representatives on how to carry out their duties. Um, there was a uh, secretary to a couple of successive governors general back in, in 1945 who said that, you know, it's often said that the that the governor general represents the king. And he said it would be more accurate to say he, he represents the crown because there's a difference between representing a person and the office held by a person. And I think that's kind of a good way to think of it, that that in in some ways the queen herself is a representative of the crown. And, and so we kind of tend to conflate these two things, that we, you know, the person of the monarch, of course, is... is um, the representative of all the things that cluster around the crown and the constitution. Um, but, uh, but she herself, you know, I mean, especially when we have somebody like the like queen Elizabeth, who's, who's reigned for 70 years and that incredible continuity and that um, tradition of service. I mean, she's the only monarch most of us have ever known. And uh, you know, all the, you know, you think about what well, I think Shakespeare wrote about the about the uh, the divinity that doth hedge a king, you know, and the the all the, the thrice gorgeous ceremony and all the things, all the trappings that are yeah, kind of personally yeah. clustered around this this person, right? Um, and yet, it is it is a matter of the functions being carried out separately in different realms by different officials, right? But am I right in saying Queen Elizabeth, who who currently holds the office of of queen as sort of the apex of the monarchy, mm-hmm. does mm-hmm. still exercise some personal discretion in some Canadian matters? I'm thinking about use of her cipher, use of her image on stamps or money. I, I mm-hmm. understand from reading the tabloid press that um, appointments of certain honorary military positions with Canadian military regiments are in her gift, that mm-hmm. although we do have a, a sort of a de facto head of state in Canada, all yeah. ties have not been fully severed. Is that is that a fair assessment? Oh, yeah. No, I wouldn't say that ties have been severed in, in um, yeah, I wouldn't want to suggest that. And, and I suppose, you know, the thing to bear in mind is the Queen is a constitutional monarch too, right? And so, you know, she's going to be very circumspect about um, weighing in in um, constitutional questions in Canada. That, you know, again, the default position is always to follow ministerial advice. With respect to, to Canada, the Queen would act on the advice of her ministers, and that would be her Canadian ministers, right? And so, you know, I think that's important that we, you know, before Canada's founding, you know, as a dominion in 1867, um, the queen, the monarch, has been a constitutional monarch, and so they're they're acting on that advice, and and um, 
you know, when they when they visited Canada, um, or I should actually say toured Canada. They don't like to say visited because you know this is part of a uh, of their realms. But uh, but when they've come to Canada, we start with uh, the first time we ever had a reigning monarch come to Canada in 1939. We had George the, the uh, sixth visit, and um, uh, they carried out the duties of head of state, you know, in kind of a, a performative kind of way. You had uh, um, them uh, giving, um, accepting letters of credence from uh, from diplomats. You had them um, um, granting royal assent to legislation in Canada. We had famously the Queen in 1982 proclaiming the, the Constitution Act after the newly patriated um, Constitution had had come home, and and so that that I thought carried a really clear message that complete legislative autonomy, as represented by the patriated Constitution, wasn't incompatible with our continued adherence to a shared monarch. Right. So so I think that's kind of an important um, point to make that that we can have this shared monarch and be an entirely autonomous nation. Right? The shared monarch concept is, is interesting to wrap your head around. I'm thinking of a, a real-world example where media baron Conrad Black was in the UK offered a peerage. And that, as I understand it, would be advice rendered by a British prime minister to uh, the Queen of England, Queen of Great Britain. And the Canadian prime minister, Jean Chrétien at the time, weighed in and purported to give advice to the queen, the same natural person, but wearing her Canadian crown, advising her that as a Canadian citizen, Conrad Black should not accept a peerage. And well, I think we know what happened there. Uh, Conrad Black gave up his Canadian citizenship. But I think of that as a as sort of a fascinating example of one natural person wearing two crowns. Do I have that right? Yes. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. And of course, since 1919, I believe it was, uh, Canadians haven't been... Um, uh, permitted to accept such uh, such honors, right? And, the Nickel and, uh, Resolution. Yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah. So, um, so yeah, this is um, this is kind of an interesting case in point. It, it you know, accepting that peerage conflicted with Canadian law, and so that's kind of you know, if you wish to be a Canadian citizen, um, you uh, you cannot. And, and in that case, um, uh, Lord Black renounced it, right? So, um, yeah, that's uh, that's an interesting example. And so sometimes these very rare and unusual circumstances can kind of, you know, confront us with all the ambiguities inherent in that relationship, right? Do you think, uh, I, I don't imagine that, that Queen Elizabeth will be, will be touring Canada again, but when um, Charles assumes the throne, if he, if he uh, and his queen consort wife, are uh-huh. touring Canada when the House of Commons is sitting. Do mm-hmm. you see him delivering a throne speech? Oh, absolutely. If it were if it were um, the time to do it, yes, absolutely. That would be um, quite in keeping with with his role as king. Yes, yeah. So um, you know that um, that could happen. That um, that uh, depending on the, the stage of Parliament <laughs> during uh, the time they they visit, that could uh, that could well be. Uh, could well be done. I'm, I'm aware that in the UK, the, the, the sitting prime minister still meets with the queen regularly. 
and mm-hmm. there are there are privileged discussions, and there's there's the yeah. um, the famous statement that the uh, the monarch is entitled to be consulted, advise, and warn. Mm-hmm. I, I don't understand that practice to be largely followed in Canada with with the prime minister and the governor general and the premiers and lieutenant governors. Do you know if that's the case or, or if that practice yeah, could ever I mean, emerge? Yeah, I, I think that I think that it has in the past, and I think that kind of comes from a place that the monarch is typically, you know, as in the case of, of uh, Queen Elizabeth, somebody of long and deep experience. You know, there's there's somebody who has seen a lot of prime ministers come and go. They've seen a lot of uh, a lot of uh, political evolution over their uh, over the term of their reign, and so the theory I think behind that. Is that the um, the head of government can somehow draw on that experience, can can uh, use the head of state as a sounding board in some ways, and and um, could benefit by that experience. And you know, as you say, these are these are conversations that are private conversations. We don't know how they go, and we don't frankly know how much of that takes place under you know the term of any uh, of any particular prime minister i think in canada's past this again kind of depending on who held what office right uh that's something that um that could could have um and in fact did happen at times um but i think it, it a lot of it is in who's holding the office at any time i mean is is this is the um Governor General, somebody who who has an individual has a great deal of experience. I mean, they're typically mature people mm-hmm. uh, of of considerable accomplishment, and and so sometimes they can offer some some wisdom and guidance, particularly for a, a um, uh, inexperienced head of government. But you know, this is something that is very much left to, you know, it's not a it's not a kind of a requirement. It, it's um, it's left to the uh, needs of the. Uh, of the individual head of government, and um, and so I mean, some have have kind of had regular meetings. You know, this has kind of been a thing in the past that you know that they meet weekly. You know, I'm talking about in the in the distant past, and of course that's that's um, changed. But uh, but the the mechanism is there, right? That to, to to kind of have those informal discussions. Who appoints the lieutenant governors? Uh, those are appointed by the by the uh, federal government. And do those offices or individuals have any direct relationship with with the queen? Well, they also are the are the representatives of the crown uh, in the same way. I think you know the lieutenant governor. Uh, that role is is to me a particularly interesting one in a lot of ways, and it's one I I you know have studied last. There have been plenty of people who have have delved into that. Deeply, the historian John Saywell wrote a very interesting book on the on the role of the lieutenant governors. But it's to me it's particularly interesting because we see kind of encapsulated in that role the two strands of Canada's constitutional evolution. There's kind of been two ways in which our constitution has evolved. One of them is is the one that I kind of have thought most about in terms of Canada's autonomy vis-a-vis Britain, right? That people sometimes imagine, for example, that um, Confederation heralded Canada's independence from Britain. Um, that's a tough notion to scrub from people's minds. That, that simply did not happen. Canada was already self-governing before Confederation. 
um, you know, the, the separate British North American um, colonies, so since the, the 1840s and early 1850s, um, self-governing with respect to internal matters. And Confederation didn't create self-government in external matters. That was one very incrementally, bit by bit, and uh, the 1931 Statute of Westminster was what confirmed it. But frankly, by the time of the 1931 Statute of Westminster, it had already evolved to that point. So in common with a lot of our constitutional statutes of various types, it, it's kind of a confirmation of what's already the case. So anyway, we have that one strand of constitutional evolution, you know, vis-a-vis uh, the British Empire, and we also have the strand of the evolving relationship between the federal government and the provinces. And so it's kind of in that realm that you see the lieutenant governor's role as, as I think, particularly interesting. Because, you know, at the time of Confederation, Johnny MacDonald imagined that the um, provincial levels of government would, over time, organically wither away. He really believed that. He said it was plain to me as if I saw it accomplished, but he said it wouldn't do to take that point of view in, in lower Canada, hmm. you know, French Canada. Right, right, right you yeah. know. And so, so, of course, yeah, Confederation was kind of a compromise. It was about, you know, he would have preferred a simple legislative union, all the provinces glommed together into one. They would cease to be provinces. You just have one level of government rather than a federal arrangement. But he couldn't get what he wanted. And of course, for French Canada, Confederation wasn't a means of joining together. It was a means of breaking apart because they were already joined in the province of Canada since 1840, right? So for them, it was about coming out of one union and now having your own government at the provincial level, which they hadn't had since, you know, before 1840. So it was kind of more of a, of a divorce than a marriage, if you like, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I think that uh, people like John A. MacDonald envisaged the lieutenant governors as kind of like federal watchdogs yeah. over the provinces, right? You know, and so um, in the early days of Confederation, the um, federal government would disallow provincial legislation on a very routine basis. Um, you know, dozens of provincial acts disallowed by the federal government in the early decades of Confederation. It was not an unusual thing at all. Now, that's an example of a lapsed power. It's still there in writing, right. uh, but it hasn't happened since the 1940s. So it's kind of understood now that the federal government has has no power of disallowance over provincial acts. They can't strike them down. But originally, you could almost picture that relationship between the Dominion government and the provinces as kind of like a quasi-imperial one, that in some ways it echoed that imperial power of disallowance over Dominion legislation, right? So kind of that same almost imperial model. And, of course, it evolved and and, uh, the provinces became... um, much more autonomous, and of course, the successive rulings through, especially through the, the late 19th, early 20th century, of the Judicial Committee, the Privy Council, when they had to rule on areas of provincial or federal jurisdiction, um, you know, they they these successive rulings had the effect of of strengthening the position of the of the provinces. With that evolution in mind, I wonder 
and, and I'm thinking about Republican sentiment and, and individuals who would have the, the office of the Queen abolished if regional cleavages or premiers or people of certain provinces would say, well, no, we're not interested in that because uh, lieutenant governors and our direct relationship with the crown are actually symbolically or otherwise a safeguard to our independence and our form of government in our province. I hadn't really thought about that before, but do you think hmm. there's any value there? I mean, t- to the extent that you would need unanimity from the provincial legislatures anyway to make that sort of change, I'm, you know, yeah, I'm thinking you would, about yeah. Alberta or some provinces that would say, well, well, no, thank you. We want to keep this office intact. Interesting. Yeah. I mean, you know, I would say that, you know, the same thing is kind of true at the provincial level. They're kind of those guardians of, of, um, of, uh, of democracy in a sense, right? That they, uh, they do perform that that role of, of uh, safeguarding the Constitution. I would say also one of the important things that, that one element of our society that, that might have um, thoughts on the question of, of uh, becoming a republic or First Nations. And, and this is something people, I think, sometimes um, discount, that I think that the, uh, the Crown has served an important role um, through history and, and now in safeguarding that important relationship. And, of course, you'll know that, that treaties are all in the name of the Crown and um, and even for uh, First Nations that are um, not parties to treaties, the honour of the Crown is really important. Um, I, had a, I had a student question the other day. We were talking about treaties, and, and somebody said, well, could a government simply repudiate a treaty that a previous government had made, you know, and and that was to my mind a great opportunity to talk about the honor of the crown, that there's kind of a a reason why treaties are made in the, in the name of the crown. And, you know, I think some um, representatives of of, uh, indigenous nations have said things like, you know, if you've chosen to divide that crown up, well, that's on you. That's, that's, fine, but, but, you know, our, our agreement is with the crown and however that manifests itself is sort of immaterial. And, and so I think that's quite important. That, and I think it's also significant that um, uh, some of the people who are, for example, um, commemorating the Platinum Jubilee, you know, with um, 70 years on the throne, uh, some of the most ardent representatives uh of um, of a celebration of that are uh, found among First Nations, like uh, for example Stephen Point, our former Lieutenant Governor of British Columbia, is among those uh, who's taking a, a role in commemoration. And uh, of course, Stephen Point, besides being the Lieutenant Governor at one point, was was a um, is judge and uh, and a uh, chief in one of the Stolo Nations, right? So so I think that that bears remembering that. That that important symbol of continuity that is about more than any one individual's promise, and about any passing government, you know, beyond any passing government's promise, but something that's enduring as an institution. To my mind, that's a really important element, and and you know, I think we always have to think twice. You know, when when whenever we talk about the role of the crown, people will will inevitably sort of look to a day that perhaps we might consider a Republican uh, option doing away with the monarchy. But I think we have to be careful about that, that, 
you know, we, we've got sort of a, I like to think of it as a crowdsourced constitution, you know, that this is something that's evolved over time from a lot of different minds and a lot of different traditions. And, and you know, we're not always able to see around corners and, and plan for every exigency, right? So, so I think that uh, there's something to be said for things that have evolved naturally in this way. When you talk about you know, honor and tradition and, and symbolism, I, I think about the, so, the social and cultural role that, you know, the Queen's representatives in Canada often fulfill and, mm-hmm. and just what a, what a value that is to Canadians to, you know, you, you talked about Indigenous um, groups, but also civic organizations, professional organizations, you know, the concept of the royal family acting as patrons or as honorary uh, regimental officers and and to me that that seems like such a value because it, it, it lends mm-hmm. such um, uh, profile to organizations uh, a sense of honor or purpose or accomplishment a, t- a greater tie to history I, I know yeah. we've talked uh, this afternoon a lot about the brass tax role of, of the governor yeah. general and the queen but um, do you share that view that there's a there's a, a heritage a social cultural value to the role of the crown in Canada yeah, absolutely, I do. And of course, yeah, the, the irony, uh, I think we've been talking, as you say, about the brass tax, and, and that's, of course, the in terms of time commitments, the smallest part of the role, right? right? That, right. that often many of these things are just things that need to be done very occasionally, and uh, and the real work-a-day stuff is, is in this realm, in the social and cultural realm. And I think that's, that's enormously valuable, and I feel like um, that's, I suppose, one of the reasons why it's a very punishing role, you know. I mean, that uh, people will kind of scoff at that. You know, you live in this grand residence and you have staff and everything else. But, you know, I, I remember when when Adrian Clarkson was was governor general, I had the opportunity on a couple of occasions to to visit and stay at Rideau Hall, and um, and I thought, my goodness, they're just workhorses, right? They had events back to back to back, and you know late night event and then you're up in the morning and there's a crowd of strangers around the breakfast table and um, um, His Excellency John Austin Saul had to go off and give a fly somewhere and give a speech in the north and he had laryngitis and he was mm. frantically scribbling notes in the back of the car right. and things like that for the next engagement and you know people might uh, they go you know uh, they have a little sympathy but but I think this is a, that for people who who really take the role seriously and uh, want to fully uh, make use of all that it can be and all it can represent. Um, they work very hard indeed, and this is uh, it is important, as you say, that people who connect with that larger history and that role and what it symbolizes, um, I think it is very important. The division between the head of states, the, the patronages, the honors, that system from the actual head of government I think of it as a nice division of power. So you have the the politicians uh, in the assembly, you know, executive members of government doing what they do, and then you have the whole other separate wing, the Rideau Hall group, who are more often than not doing the metal pinning and the ribbon cutting. Yeah, it's interesting. Yeah, it's funny. A colleague of mine had commented once that he thought our system of having a, um, you know, that our our head of government. Is immersed in the legislature. They're at they're at the core of it. You know, of course, they're they're um, appointed to to um, to the ministry 
from the ranks of members of the House of Commons, right? And we right. know, of course, who they're going to be, the uh, head of the, um, of the leading party and whatnot. But but um, he said that, uh, in a way, it kind of keeps our heads of government humble that they uh, have to engage in the daily, uh, or not daily, but, but in the regular grilling and question period and whatnot. Yes. And, uh, and you know, so you have like an American president and they're, they're aloof from that. And so they, they almost take on the characteristics of a, of a monarch, you know, and they have the first lady mm-hmm. and this mm-hmm. sort of thing. I mean, mm-hmm. that's not part of our tradition. We do have, you know, the separation of that, of that dignified aspect of, of governance. Um, and the, the, um, the legislative business, the executive business that's carried out by the prime minister. And, and uh, yeah, it's, it's a very different kind of model. As a, uh, as a professor and, and someone who, who studies and publishes in this area, do you see an, an ebb and flow in interest based on um, pop culture happenings? I, I know the Netflix show The Crown is is or was very popular. There's a whole bunch of tabloid type issues going on over in the UK with certain members of the uh, royal family. Um, Not suggesting you necessarily always, always read those tabloids, but when, when things are happening in in Hollywood or on the news, does that impact enrollment in your seminars or the demand for papers in this area in Canada? Yeah, I think, I think it is very much driven that the climate of interest is, is uh, in fact, in this subject, as in, as in every subject driven by, you know, what's out there and kind of the zeitgeist, right? So, so yeah, I mean, if we have um, institutions like the Crown and, and uh, you know, I um, remember teaching something that she was a Suez crisis and one fellow was very excited. He said, oh, I saw this on the Crown. Yeah, really, uh, it captures people's imagination, certainly. And so I always try to remember that, that even when things are, are going badly, uh, there's an opportunity there. And when I say going badly, I'm thinking of, you know, the, the uh, whole controversy with uh, Madame Payette and whatnot. Right. And, and uh, it's an opportunity to talk to people a little bit about the, the office and what it means. And, and, you know, and some people come to it from um, from other ways. Some people, you know, maybe they've seen The Crown, maybe they've heard the interview by the Duchess and Duke of Sussex and, and right. Um, right. And accusations of, of racism and things like that. And, and, you know, this is, to me, any any interest is kind of good interest. It's an opportunity to talk about the role and about um, what it means and some of the positive things. So, so, so yeah, I think uh, that whatever generates that interest, um, that's that's a good thing. And and you know, it's also important to get that the Crown's a robust institution. They've uh, they've been through a lot over the years, and, and certainly uh, Her Royal Highness has certainly been through a lot. And you look at some of the controversies today, you know, with with Prince Andrew, with with the uh, with the Sussexes, and um, you know, it's just been a very Bad, like 2021 would be another one of the. What did she say? Amos Horribilis, right? right the, yes. <laughs> the, back in it was 92, I think I can't remember, but yeah. but uh, this has been a really difficult time, and of course uh, the the death of uh, Prince Philip, and um, so so they've gone through difficult times, uh, but they they carry on, and and I think this is true of other sovereigns in the past, even though they. 
during Queen Victoria's reign, the fact that uh, people were very critical of the way she withdrew from public life after the death of Prince Albert, you know, that that the institution has been criticized um, many, many times over the years, and, and sometimes for, for good reason, um, but um, but it still carries on and it, and it survives. Um, like, for example, with the, the Governor General, if we're disappointed in this particular uh, appointee in, in Julie Payette and yes. how she carried out the role, it doesn't mean that the role itself is irredeemably flawed. It just means we, we found somebody in this instance who wasn't a good fit for us. You know, so. Right. I mean, con- conversely, the Cambridge's tour of Canada four or mm-hmm. five years ago, I understand, was, was, a, was a great success and, and uh, they remained very popular. I think so, yes, and I think that's certainly a bright spot. I think they, um, they've really got it right, yeah. So let me ask you this. Uh, Queen Elizabeth can't live forever. She's enjoying mm-hmm. 70 years on the throne. Can you tell us at a high level, practically speaking, but also maybe speculating on what happens when uh, Queen Elizabeth does finally pass? Yeah, so when you say high level, it gives me kind of the bird's eye view idea. Bird's eye view. Kind of your, yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, I mean, what I what I think is the most important to, to say about it is that, um, you know, the phrase, the king is dead, long live the king, that kind of sums it up right there, you right. know, that there's kind of this sense of continuity. And again, it, it comes down to, you know, there's the person of the monarch, but then there's the, the crown and, and everything it represents. So, so I think um, that's the most important element that, um, that, uh, we will there will be no interregnum. We'll have a we'll we'll always have a monarch. Um in Canada we have um succession to the throne act that, that essentially states that the person who's um the monarch in Britain will also be the monarch in Canada. Um the actual coronation itself will, will happen later. That's that takes time obviously to arrange. Uh the governor general will issue a a proclamation. There'll be a, an accession council at St. James's Palace in London, and um, uh, that will announce the succession of the Prince of Wales, and Canada's High Commissioner will, will be there. Uh, and there'll also be an accession um, proclamation ceremony in Canada. Um, this is uh, Canada's Privy Council will be in back of that. And that isn't isn't required to give effect to anything. It, it's basically announcement. So it's it's in some ways set up on on autopilot in that sense that uh, that we will not be without a monarch. There'll be no interruption. Do you get do you get any sense? And I appreciate this maybe isn't your area of study that the next king's face may not be on our money, won't be on our postage. The, the courts of Queen Bench across the country won't become the court of, of King's Bench. I'm wondering, and again, it's it's what you read sometimes that that a Republican movement may take hold of of Canada when that time comes, and that the effigy of of King Charles may be less visible than his mother. Do you have any thoughts on that? Well, I suppose you know this again comes down to the fact that we do conflate those two things, and and I think nobody could reasonably claim that. That Charles is as personally popular as his mother. Right. I think that uh, that's a given. Um, I think you know you've, you've uh, alluded to the uh, Duke of Cambridge. I think you know if all continues as it as it uh, has, that he could well personally be a, a very popular monarch. But uh, but yeah, I, I I think that 
that does influence people's views of such things. And so, yeah, I don't have, don't have any personal insights into whether that's likely to happen or not. But I, I would say that uh, that we do conflate those things. We do um, uh, inevitably allow our our personal feelings about the the person who's uh, who, whose reign it is to to uh, influence what we think about. Um, about the office in general, about the crown. And, uh, you know, I think, I hope that we can sort of see beyond that and kind of uh, appreciate the value of the crown as, a, as an institution and, and what it represents in our constitution that, that, you know, sometimes people will just think in terms of, you know, just simply sweeping things away without quite realizing um, what are we throwing out at the same time, right? Professor Messamore, thanks very much for joining me. I appreciate you taking the time to chat with me about the role of the Crown in Canada. And I do hope that students continue to take uh, more classes with you on what I think is an important subject and things that more Canadians uh, need to better understand. Yeah, it's been a pleasure to talk to you. If you're interested in learning more about the role and the history of the Crown in Canada, visit monarchist.ca the website for the Monarchist League of Canada. Up next week is Bruce Moncur, a former reservist and veteran who, while serving in Afghanistan, was injured in a friendly fire incident. He started a non-profit called Valor in the Presence of the Enemy, which is advocating for a re-examination of honors awarded to Afghan veterans and soldiers in other conflicts. The group would like to see a Canadian Victoria Cross awarded. That's it for this week. Until next time. We're under reserve.